we forgot one thing. Next Sunday, congregational meeting. Six at six. It's in flock notes. We will send out more announcements, but next Friday at 5 or 6. S Sunday. Well, if you open a Bible to the very first page of the Old Testament, Genesis 1, and please pray with me. Father, you have sent your word and we have heard and the Spirit is here with us. We pray that you would work, Father, for the glory of your Son by his strength and achievement in the Spirit. that our hearts would be shaped in communion with you. That from us would come the praise of those rescued, slaves set free, dead raised, your own, your own children in your household. Pray in your son's name, Father. Amen. So today we are starting a series in Genesis. Uh, over the next three months, we will hear the first three chapters. Why? Well, John 1, 1 through 5, that we heard calling us to worship today. Jesus is God the living and true God. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not some generic God, not God as anyone might define him, not some idea of the greatest or grandest. Jesus is Yahweh, the Old Testament God. Jesus is the God who created the universe. The Son of God became a man to overcome the ruin of sin. He came down from heaven and took the lowest place on earth. The infinite stepped into the finite. Yahweh did something very similar when he rescued Egypt, when he rescued Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. God came down from heaven and he he dwelled in the tabernacle, a royal tent in a nation of tent dwellers. He did not take the lowest place, but he made his earthly home with slaves, having no country, and an insignificant history of wandering. People that he called stubborn and stiff-necked. He made his 
home with them, and he made his home like their homes, a tent. God came down from heaven to deliver those slaves. He dwelled in the tent with Israel, and the incarnation is much the same. Jonathan brought this to us some time ago. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word John uses for dwell here, it's artistic, it's significant. If the setting was a Bedouin people like Abraham and his sons, it would be translated, he pitched his tent among us. God came down and dwelled on the earth to rescue humanity and return us to himself. Jesus is not only your Savior. Jesus is your God. He did not simply come to clean up the mess. God came down to reconcile us, to bring us back to himself. Who is the living and true God? What is his character? With whom is your life communion? If Jesus is the answer, then we need to understand the question. If Jesus reconciles us to God, then we need to listen carefully to who God is. So, we begin at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the night from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. I've chosen the first 19 verses to answer this question. What happened? What did God do? In the next two weeks, we'll look more closely at the results and at the point of creation. But first, what happened? In a series of seven days, God spoke and created the world. He demonstrated his power and affection. These two words, power and affection, they require explanation and elaboration, but hold on to them with me. They are the first great revelation here. What happened? In a series of seven days, God spoke and created the world. He demonstrated his power and affection. And of course, Genesis 1 is a, a text of dispute. Evolution, intelligent design, creationism, young earth, old earth. It's likely that you've heard many things about Genesis 1. You may well have, have read some. There, there, there's much to read. There's far too much written to read at all. You may have an opinion. If you do, you know that any opinion will stir up some other opinion with just a hint of your opinion. You may think that these questions belong to experts and scholars and, and geeks. So it's a two points to stepping in. One, you most certainly do not need to be right about everything in Genesis 1. You can be confused. You can be wrong about various things. Faith in the Lord Jesus does not give full and perfect knowledge. And faith in the Lord Jesus does not require that you get exactly this Bible passage or that Bible passage right. You don't have to hold the right view to be part of Grace Presbyterian Church. Two, Moses wrote Genesis to be understood by Israelites, ordinary people who lived in the same world that you live in today. Now, they didn't know almost any of the things that you learned in your seventh grade science class. They were, in the common sense way, experts in watching the sun go up and go down. They knew about rain or snow or hail that fell from the clouds. They knew about seasonal flooding, how it covers the countryside. They knew about these most ordinary events that we refer to as the cycle of nature. 
Moses uses strikingly ordinary language in Genesis 1. You don't need to settle most of the controversies to understand what happened. In a series of seven days, God spoke, created the world. He demonstrated his power and affection. Now, there is one often disputed issue that needs to be settled. What kind of writing did we just read? What kind of writing is Genesis 1? Is it a poem or is it a parable? Now, this is actually a fairly simple question. Genesis 1 is a history of a mystery. You saw a little rhyme to hold that together. It's a history of a mystery. It is not poetry. Hebrew poetry has very explicit features. Not like English. Hebrew poetry, very formally clear. That's poetry. And these, these features don't appear in Genesis 1, except verse 27, which is a poem. You can tell the difference between that one verse, which is a short snippet of poetry, and the rest of Genesis 1. It's a poem appearing at the, the climax of Genesis 1. Just like, if you look at Genesis 2, that narrative, it finishes with a little poem at the climax. In chapter 3, a climax, the fall, it ends with three short poems. And even chapter 4 ends with, a, it's, it's history. It tells the tale of Cain and Abel's life, the progress of mankind, Lamech. It ends with one of the ugliest poems you'll ever read. The history writing in Genesis 1 and the poetry writing are observably different, just like they are in the coming chapters. If it's not a poem, is it a parable? A striking piece of make-believe to teach an important truth? Parables call the hearer to connect and compare. The once upon a time has to be set beside the here and now. Parables can only be understood if they show their trick. Otherwise, they're utterly confusing. Moses doesn't suggest such an artistic illustration. There is no A is like B. It is what happened that pushes people back from seeing Genesis 1 as history. God speaks and creates the universe in seven days. The rest of the book of Genesis has the undisputed marks of Hebrew history writing. Now, now these are, are technical details of grammar and syntax and discourse. But Genesis 1 has that same texture, that same specific linguistic quality. 
but I can give you two really decisive points that are not expert knowledge. They really are obvious. And, and I've alluded already to the first one. The inclusion of that little poem about making man God's image at the climax in Genesis 1.27, it's exactly the way poems are used throughout this book of history. The other chapters, there's no question that this is represented history, studded with these same bits of poetry to make points, to bring forward conclusions, to give understanding of what happened. The poem in Genesis 1.27 fits the same way as these other poems. It really is accurate to say that tagging on a piece of poetry is how the writer of Genesis writes history. Events, real world, a vivid explanation or example. That's one point. Genesis 1, not poetry, history. Second, Adam, Eve, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, Abraham, on and on. The central events and persons in this book of history are later cited as historical by other scripture. The same is true of this seven-day week in Genesis 1. In Exodus, the fourth commandment is anchored with this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, Genesis 1 is history. Nonetheless, it is history of a mystery. What happened is laid out step by step, or at least step by step, or at least day by day. But the how is not depicted. The only how is God said. There's no discussion of plate tectonics or an initially thicker atmosphere or changes in the saline percentage of the water or the influence of sudden intense solar radiation on the seeding cycle. The mechanics are a mystery. There's no reference to evaporation. And, and one might wonder, did the ancient Israelites have an explanation? for how all the water comes down and never goes back up? They spoke of dew coming down from heaven, but how does that work? The most dewy grass I've ever seen was dawn after a cloudless night. Was water from heaven that doesn't fall from the sky, was that sort of an ordinary mystery? Did the Israelites recognize that all terrestrial light is from the sun? Did, did they know that the moon is essentially a reflector? The mechanics of ordinary life, we would say, are not known to them. Many of the mechanics of ordinary life that you live are not known to you. God said, and Moses does not say all sorts of mechanical how. Now we are impressed by the mystery in Genesis 1 because the seventh grade 
teacher told us that science can explain everything. And Moses gives no explanation. How mysterious. The Israelites were impressed with the mystery because the beginning of all things actually looked so much like regular day-to-day life. Except each of those days is cataclysmic with change. Can we even imagine how? Should we balk at Moses' account of creation because we can't explain it? Can we figure out some of the mechanics here? Now, Proverbs tells us, it is the glory of God to hide a thing and the glory of kings to find them out. Maybe we can figure out how some of it worked, but modesty is fitting. It isn't wrong to wonder or explore, but here we have God himself telling us not everything, but clearly. This is what Moses gives you. In a series of seven days, God spoke and created the world and demonstrated his power and affection. Before we look at speaking and seven days and power and affection, let's look at what happened in the first three days of creation. There is mystery, but this sketch of history is really easy to follow. You don't need to be an expert or appeal to specialized knowledge. Day one, the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is formless and void. It's called the deep, which is a word that would be used for the, the, the deep ocean. But it doesn't even seem to have that clarity yet. Formless contrast with what will unfold in this week. With the making of sky and oceans and continents. Void contrast with the way God will put specialized creatures into each of these three places. Formless and void. There were no habitats and there were no inhabitants. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a mass of what? A depth. And the first change is a creation of light. The deep is in darkness and God creates light to separate day and night. This is not bizarre. This is dawn. It's dark and light begins. It's the first dawn. How does one create dawn? Still, everyone with eyes to see has seen something like this. How? Because God said, And notice, you have that evening and that morning. There's darkness over the face of the deep. And the light came. Evening gives way to morning. 
And that first day, wait, that's exactly what every day is like. Darkness in the evening giving way to light in the morning. It's the first day and yet it is a, a day. We, we recognize this. Day two, it's creation of the sky, the expanse, the open space. By separating the water to water below and water above this expanse, above the sky. Does that seem strange? To think of a large open space with water below and water above? Well, you've seen this clearly. If you've stood on the beach looking out over the ocean under a stormy, beclouded sky, you have seen an expanse with water below and water above. That actually is just an ordinary description. Now, does this seem like a stretch? But from, from simple observation over seasons and years, everyone knows there's water up there somewhere, even when there isn't a sign of it, like clouds. You and I think of evaporation and a water cycle again. They showed us that in seventh grade. That knowledge of the mechanics doesn't invalidate the belief without explanation that there's water up in the sky. What a foolish thing to think. Why do you think that? Well, because it keeps coming down. Sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hard. But there is water up above. Again, God made the sky with water above that falls to earth. The second day, it's a very ordinary, understandable description. Now, day three is odder because it seems so inexplicably fast. But really, the description is not strange. God makes the dry land by gathering the waters into their places. And the land appears. Now, you and I might speak of water seeking its own level and draining and evaporation. But again, this is what it would look like to see the Nile annually flood. And over time, the water recede. Smaller and larger circles become of dry ground. This is what it would look like if you experienced a flash flood in more uneven terrain. Still, would a massive flood over all the dry land recede so quickly? This is day three, evening, morning. How could that happen? And the fact is that day three isn't done yet. Um, God speaks again and all kinds of vegetation springs forth from the land. Now, the Israelites do not get their food from a grocery store. They know about vegetation springing from the land. They know about sowing seeds. And they know that mm, we're talking days to weeks to where sprouting is something that you could see. That doesn't happen in part of a day half a day, 
Any growth worth noticing takes a month or maybe only two weeks. Again, here God speaks something completely imaginable, except for the scale and the sense of rapidity. If you slowed it down, it would be an experience like one seen year after year after year, and let's be clear, one seen happily. It's not strange. But there's no indication of the mechanics. I can't explain how. Moses doesn't explain how. Now, throughout Genesis 1, there are two ordinary things most frequently repeated. God speaks, and his work is marked in days. Although ordinary, both are mysterious. Um, God does not have lips. He spoke. Wait, was there a sound to be heard? Um, would that be like the roaring of a river? Is there something of a symphony? How does that work? These days, at least the first three, have neither sun nor moon. In a fashion, they're like days and nights where the sun and moon never appear. Some long storm, I guess. But there's no mention of a storm or clouds. How do you measure a day when neither sun nor moon appears? I don't know how. But you measure it in whatever evening is and whatever a morning is. Still, with mystery, these are the most ordinary of the ordinary. Speech and days are really the most human of ordinary things. We know them better even than the world around us. We speak to make things happen like God does. And, and of course, we, we do much with our hands. And our speech can only immediately have effects when we address other people if they submit to our authority or if they cooperative with our desires. Evening and mornings, those are the slices of our life. After each unconscious rest, hopefully unconscious rest, in our beds, we have a day to do, even if our custom is to speak of it as morning followed by evening. How can this be history? God speaking and God working a day and then a day and then the next day. It's as ordinary as all the other things spoken about. How? God said, God did. And that description is very, very clear. Now, God speaking is generally not confusing to us. We are so accustomed, so extraordinary, we are so accustomed to God's word in our lives. We reverently refer to Jesus as the word. We know that his promises determine the future. We know that his commands direct our lives. We know that his words give us the comfort and invigoration of life. 
And so it's likely obvious to you that in Genesis 1, God speaks and demonstrates his power over all things. His unlimited power. God speaks, naming the day and the night and the sky and the earth and the seas. He has authority. Not only the power to bring them to existence, but the authority to determine what they are and how we understand them. He speaks with authority and arranges the sun and the moon and the stars to follow. Follow. This intricate pattern of months and years. And that's the same power and authority without limit that came down from heaven in the Incarnation. Yes, Jesus is this God. Power and authority, unlimited. But what of those ordinary days, those evenings and mornings, one after another? What is this creation week plan that the living God is carrying out in steps? There is much controversy over how long these days are. Are they seven epics that match that Billions of years that all educated people know they should not about. Are they seven 24-hour slices adding up to 144 billable hours of labor and 24 hours of rest? Can the waters recede that fast? Can the vegetation sprout forth in that? looks like an afternoon. Maybe from mid-morning, the trees? Of course they can. And no, we couldn't for a moment pretend a better explanation than Moses. And Moses doesn't tell us how Moses said, God said. He spoke with unlimited power and authority. Can you really say that 24-hour days are just not possible, not in the world as we know it? You cannot remove the mystery from creation any more than you can remove the history. Moses is as emphatic as he is repetitive. God spoke. God created a series of seven days. Morning and evening are the scale of regular days, spans of time. Ordinary and obvious terms like dawn and water above the sky, sprouting up of plants. Without the authority and power of our contemporary scientific consensus, who would dispute those days while they puzzled over them? Of course, it really is inconceivable how the universe could be fashioned so quickly in such rapid steps. How long does it take a forest to grow? Rivers change their courses over years. Compared to these things, we, we would say the, the stars move swiftly because in a year they go through a cycle. A year. With the power and authority of God demonstrated in his speaking, there's no reason to deny 
the days of creation are days of history. And why do these days matter? We can be pulled aside to dispute about what are clocks and how ancient people tell time and modern people tell time and what does this mean for our understanding of quantum physics. I, why do these days matter? They are a series displaying God's mighty and kingly speaking, but they have an even sweeter glory. Evening and morning, working one day and the other, like you do, under the authority of sun and moon, these days demonstrate God's affection for the visible world, the world of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you care for him? Now this is perhaps foreign and strange. So may the Lord give clarity. The Son of Man took on flesh. He took the limits and responsibilities of mankind to accomplish your salvation. Yahweh dwelled in a kingly tent to transform a nation of slaves into a holy nation. God did not come down just to solve the problem or to remove the stain or blot out the blemish against his honor. Salvation is not about the moral tidiness of the universe. He came to save the world because of his sincere and profound affection for it. These words of the Nicene Creed express it well. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He did not come down because sin was so important, but because he loved his people. Our salvation was undertaken because of his affection for us. He did not come only for our salvation. He came for us. In Genesis 1, the heavenly realm, the invisible, unseen part of creation, is barely mentioned. You know about that from the Old Testament. You know about it from the New Testament. A host of angels appear in Luke, singing out praise. There's no mention of this multitude of really glorious creatures. I say glorious because when folks like you and I meet them in the Old Testament, they pitch forward. It's like, it's like they're burning with the afterglow of passing through God's presence. And it radiates off as more. Than, they live in glory. That's the realms of glory, as it's called. Fall of angels. None of this is here. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And he's completely focused on the visible realm. Fragile, limited, lower. And he speaks his mighty word over and over. He sees the results of his work. What really is water and mud and growing green stuff. And he takes satisfaction that it is good and good, and good, and then finally with man standing there, very good. 
God is so engaged, so involved, so invested in creating the world that he is, his own work takes on the wisdom and the pattern of this ordinariness. He works in days because that is how the world works and he is delighted to work in it. Now it would be reasonable. St. Augustine was sure it must truly be this way to create with a single immediate twinkle of power. God is perfect. No steps for him. It could well seem how much more like God's grand lordship over all things to work in epics that exceed the attention span, even the memory of not just men, but generations. No. Evening and morning. Just as the world moves forward in small slices of day after day, the living and true God came down from heaven and spoke. In a series of seven days, he created the world and showed his good pleasure in it, his affection, his heart set here. God did not disdain the earth as simply less and lower than the realms of glory. He's not like a man uh, making a terrarium, small plants and pebbles, a, a shallow water feature, a few frogs or salamanders. That man puts on plastic gloves, works on it, takes them off, doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He tends to his little created world with idle interests. It's a hobby. He notices those critters between the important task of his real work day. The living and true God continues at work in the world according to the structures of the world because of his affection for it. He's not putting up with it. He's not hemmed in by it. He is pleased to work in the patterns of families and nations. He blesses with normal human language. And he makes gifts of food and marriage and games and songs. He calls people to glorify him in all things because he is pleased with the richness that he has put into everything. Jesus is the Savior. He is the living God. His salvation returns you to the God who delights in his creatures. He has framed the world with wisdom and come to you according to the world he created, the ordinary world. That is the point of the creation days. God delighted in the world he made. Jesus brings you to the one who delights in you. He is mindful of you. He does care for you. Ordinary you. Your ordinary life. Like Hebrew history, Genesis 1 shows more than it tells. We know God, who God is by his great acts and his works. And in a series of seven days, 
He created the world by speaking. So we know about his power and his affection. In Proverbs, there's this exchange between personified wisdom and Yahweh. And there's a way to get back and forth, whatever. But you will hear and you will realize, yes, this sounds like the Father and the Son. Is it Trinity in the Old Testament? Listen. Proverbs 8. When he established the heavens, this is wisdom speaking. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the foundations of the deep. When he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundation of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. This is why the eternal son became a true man. And this is why he accomplished the work of salvation. And this is why we commune with him now as we will commune with him in full forever. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. He is your son. Glorify him in our hearts and in our company. And beyond us, we pray in your son's name.